over the course of my ministry, I meet all kinds of different people who uh, either come to church maybe reluctantly or have not yet come to that place where they're comfortable enough to even come to church. And you might think that the bulk of those people are non-religious or a-religious or don't like religion or they just feel like they just don't belong in a church. Uh, They may say comments like, if I walked in a church, I'd get struck with lightning. If I walked in a church, I would burn immediately combust, you know. Um, If, you know, people knew uh, what God knows about me, I can't step foot in church. But that's one, while that's one end of the spectrum, there's another end of the spectrum of people that are just as reluctant to go to church. Um, and it's people that are too religious for church. That may sound counterintuitive, but I remember as uh, a little kid um, asking my dad one morning why he doesn't come to church with us. And I had foggy memories as an even smaller child of him preaching in church, in his suit, in front of everyone, everyone's laughing, opening up scripture, teaching them. Really foggy memories of that. I mostly was running around and causing trouble, but I do remember him, him preaching, but then it just dawned on me. I'm like, wait, me and mom, we go to church, and he doesn't go to church. Why doesn't he go to church? And I asked him, and what he said was, what are they going to teach me there that I don't already know? Too religious for church? Can people be too religious for Jesus? That's what's happening all throughout Mark so far. Why do they hate Jesus? Who are the ones that hate Jesus? The religious ones. So what I want to present to you in this passage this morning is that whichever end of the spectrum someone is on, there's a path to get to Jesus. However long it's been since someone has been at church, however distant they feel they are from church, whatever their reasons are made up in their head that Jesus wouldn't accept them or couldn't accept them. Wherever they are on the spectrum, there's a path to Christ. And that is good news. Turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We see Mark continuing his uh, marvelous handling uh, of this gospel. The way he writes it, it's intricate. The way he uses language I wish I could give all of you every nugget that I find, you know, when I'm, when I'm studying this throughout the week. Uh, but it's just amazing that um, the way things are just pieced together. Here we get an episode with one of these two religious for Jesus types. We're going to see that right around, uh, right at verse 21. You remember Jesus got kicked out of this town where he healed the demoniac, and then he got back in the boat and crossed again that same stormy sea, not storming this time, and he gets back to the west bank. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So the crowd are those types that they want to be around Jesus, they like Jesus, Jesus is popular, but there's someone in that crowd that doesn't belong normally. Verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now that's interesting, because all we've learned about the rulers and the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees is that they want to kill Jesus. 
Now he's acting like the demoniac acted when Jesus first saw the demoniac, and he's falling at Jesus' feet. In verse 23 it says, He implored Jesus earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And I love verse 24, the short little punchy sentence. And he went with him. It wasn't like, where were you before? Where were you when I healed a paralytic? Where were you when people were arguing, who can possibly do that? Who can forgive sins? No one can forgive sins. He went with him. And you can see this man, Jairus, named because probably when people were reading this gospel, when Mark wrote it, they go, yeah, Jairus, yeah. I went to his synagogue. He was the ruler at my synagogue. I know, I know the guy. These were prominent people. Now, we live in a day and age where, where some pastors are prominent. They have to have a mega huge church and have published you know, 30 books to kind of reach that level of prominence. But your normal pastor not really prominent, you know. Um, but this is a day and age where there was prominence. Your, your religious rulers were the ones you would go to to ask permission to do stuff. So people knew who this man was, and it's very likely that he was not part of the crowd before. He wasn't following Jesus around before. He was in charge of a synagogue. He told people how to worship, where to worship, when to worship, when they were breaking the rules, when they were... Um, uh, abiding by the priest's regulations and when they weren't. He was in charge of the synagogue and synagogue was at the center of life. And then he comes to Jesus not because he figured out his teaching and not because he finally is humble enough but because something else is at stake and he's got a little girl at home and she's dying. And So now he's ready to just put down the political stuff and forget about all, the, all what his friends are going to say and maybe he loses his position at the synagogue doing this with Jesus, but he's not just going to ask him, and he doesn't just send him a card. He falls before him at his feet for his little girl. Those of you who are parents in here can imagine that level of desperation. And a great, follow, a great crowd followed him, verse 24, continuing verse 24. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him, about Jesus. Jesus is on his way to go heal this man's daughter. And now he meets someone on the other end of the spectrum. Not the super religious type, but the other end of the spectrum. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 12 years. Not a time of the month. 12 years of straight Hemorrhaging. She suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. If you research what some of these physicians did back then, I mean, they didn't have shots. <laughs> they didn't have pills. They, didn't give, they gave prescriptions, but the prescriptions were like, you know, eat three locusts and tap your head five times. Like, just weird. It was almost voodoo-ish. And they didn't know what to do. Carry this bag of dung from here to there. Literally, stuff like that. She humiliates herself. Who knows what? Carrying bags of dung up and down. And that doesn't work. Goes to the next position. She's eating bugs or something. Who knows what she's doing? 
and she spent all her money. These guys are charging her, not based on whether their cure worked. They charge her if you want me to give you a chance, give you a suggestion. She spent all that she had, and it's not just that she wasn't better, but rather she grew worse. It just kept getting worse. And I know some of you in here have experienced that painful trauma of going to the experts and going to the people that are supposed to know what's up, and instead of getting better, the situation gets worse. She is completely at the end of her rope. Verse 27, she heard reports about Jesus. What reports did she hear? The paralytic is walking around. The demoniac is healed. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law had a a deathly ill fever, and that got lifted. Um, People are walking, and coughs are gone. And These are the kind of reports that she hears. She heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up. This, this issue was so bad, she can immediately feel when it stopped. It immediately dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus feels something too. Verse 30, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And it's kind of humorous. His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Who didn't touch you? You're getting, you're getting elbowed. You're, 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 I imagine the disciples almost like bodyguards trying to clear the path for this pop singer, pop singer that's trying to get through a crowd, you know? Who touched you? Everyone's touching you. Verse 32, And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. I I think what's interesting there is, I think she touched the garment, maybe squeezing her hand between a couple of the disciples or a couple people, and she just caught the hem of the garment. And then when he goes, whoa, whoa, somebody touched me. She wasn't like me. She was backing out. Why? Because when she continues to see Jesus looking, she has to come to him and confess. Okay, 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 it was me. So it wasn't immediately obvious. She didn't grab him by the back of the, I would say lapel, but I don't know what they were, back of the tunic, you know. Um, she, she didn't make it obvious. She didn't like grab his shoulder and turn him around and say, hey, she just, she just very sneakily touched the garment. And the only reason why this is a big to-do is because Jesus felt this virtue go through him. No one would have noticed. No one would have known. And she would have just walked away. But he turned around and he demanded to know who touched him. And she knew what happened to her. So she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Well, she's already healed of her disease, but he's, he's sending her with this continued healing, like it's not coming back. It wasn't a fluke thing. You've got it right. You're healed. Now to understand what she's going through, 
It's one thing to understand that she's financially broken because of her doctors that continue to fail her. She's probably emotionally broken. Her spirit is broken because no doctor can help her and it only gets worse. That is, that'll, that'll shatter a person. But she's not just having a physical problem and a financial problem, but a societal problem. Because you remember in your, uh, those favorite times in Leviticus when you do your devotions? I know you guys love that. And when you get to that part in Leviticus about when it's a woman's time of the month, she needs to kind of be quarantined. Can't touch her. She can't go to the synagogue. She can't go to church, right? Their version. They can't, she can't gather with the crowds and worship. She can't gather in the marketplace and buy stuff. You can't brush up against her, touch her, shake her hand, fist bump her. If her elbow brushes against your elbow, you've got to go get ritually cleansed because she's unclean until the blood issue stops and then she can re-enter society, go through a ritual and re-enter society. But 12 years of never being able to re-enter. She's basically a leper. At least lepers can touch each other. She's alone. So out of this desperation, she presses through a crowd. She touches his garment. And I love how the first word, he, Jesus doesn't call anybody else daughter. This is the only time we see it. You remember a few paragraphs ago when they said, hey Jesus, your family is outside. Your mom and your brothers are outside. They want you. And he goes, no, my real mother and my real brothers are these people, people that follow me, people that have faith in me. That's my real family. And we're telling her, you've felt outcast this whole time. You feel like, no, you can't worship, you can't be a part of the synagogue, you can't sit there and learn scripture. I'm telling you, you're a part of the family. Daughter. So he's not just reversing her disease, he's reversing her status before God. Your faith has made you well. The text actually says your faith has delivered you. And delivered could mean spiritually saved or physically saved. And here maybe it's both. If he's calling her daughter and recognizing the effectiveness of her faith. You've been in turmoil. You've been in chaos. You've not had a good night's rest in 12 years. You are stressed. You're weighed down. You are burdened. But I'm sending you in peace peace you've been craving, the peace you've been looking for, the peace that doctors couldn't get you, I'm giving to you. Go in peace. Not just a physical peace, but being at one with the family of God. Daughter, go in peace. Your faith has delivered you. Be healed of your disease. Now that's a touching episode and it's great, but Jairus is like, my daughter's dying, man. She's not a cold. And it looks like the delay was costly. When you read verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? That's how you know Jairus is hanging there. Come on. And they're telling Jairus, hey man, just, just leave him. She passed away. She's dead. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of 
James. Some people say, well, it's probably because it was too small of a house and everybody couldn't get, go in. But yeah, but he still chooses the same three when it's time to just have a core unit. That's a message for another day. Verse 38 says, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now we like to go, eh, the ancient times, maybe she wasn't really dead, she didn't really know. Ancient times doesn't mean stupid times. They knew when someone was dead, and that's how they had professional mourners. What do you do for a living? I mourn. What do you mean? Well, some people, they have a funeral, and there's not enough people gathered, and that's really you know, emotionally shattering to have a funeral for a loved one and nobody shows up. So we show up. I mean, they pay us. But we show up and we mourn and we do the ashes and we wail, oh, and we just do the whole thing just so that they have an appropriate session of grief. They wouldn't do that for someone who was just knocked out or somebody who was taking a nap. She was dead. So the people were weeping and wailing loudly, as was custom, the family probably doing that, not because they're paid, but of course because this little girl has died. She didn't get to do junior high. She didn't get to do sports teams or whatever they did then when you get to that age. But then, when Jesus entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead. She's sleeping. And they laughed at him. Now, why would they laugh at him? Because they knew she wasn't sleeping. They laughed at him because they knew the difference between sleeping and death. But he put them all outside. I love that. He kicked them all out. That's a nice way of saying he kicked them out. Get out. He put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her in Aramaic, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. You think? <laughs> and he strictly charged them two things are Jesus' to-dos now. He strictly charged them that no one should know this. There he is again, hiding his identity in Jewish territory, whereas in Gentile territory, he's like, go ahead, preach from the mountaintops. But, but here, he knows he'll get arrested and killed, and he, it's not quite time yet. He strictly charged them that no one should know this. And here's the second one, very important, and told them to give her something to eat. <laughs> A little historical detail that doesn't really change your theology, you know, it's not like uh, a faith statement is going to have that line as one of its proofs, but it's just this little added detail, and from what we can piece together, Mark is getting these stories from Peter, who was there as an eyewitness, another reason why we're told Peter was one of the few that was able to go in the room. All the mourners and everybody got kicked out, but Peter, James, and John are with the Father and with Jesus in that room with that little girl, and then Peter is recounting this to Mark, and he's like, yeah, you know, I remember Jesus said, Give her something to eat. And Mark was like, what do you think on that? I think the reason why is because she wasn't kind of healed or almost healed. If you ever feel really sick and the last thing you want to do is eat, and then one morning you wake up 
And one of the ways you know you're completely better is you're like, man, I'm starving. I need to eat. And I think what Jesus is saying is, she's back to normal now. No, it's not liquids and hot towels on her head. Like, make the girl a sandwich. She's hungry, and it's been a while. She's back to normal. It didn't kind of leave her. She's not, okay, she's not dead, but she's still really sick. She's totally normal now. And that's amazing. So Jairus comes to Jesus, come heal my daughter. Jesus gets interrupted by someone who's on the other end of the spectrum, looks around, starts this little dialogue, and then somebody comes out and says, this interruption was costly. She died. He said, nah, she's sleeping. Goes in there. Takes her by the hand. Speaks to a dead girl. And she awakens. That's amazing. So, when we look at this story, we go, this is interesting. It's a story about Jairus' daughter being healed, or is it a story about this woman with the hemorrhage being healed? Well, yeah, it's two stories in one, but he didn't just give one back to back. He laid it out how it happened. He could have just given us a story about the woman with the hemorrhage, and then in another paragraph say, by the way, prior to that, there was another guy, and he said this, and that's why he's going to this home now. But he sets you up with following Jairus' story, interrupts it, puts the story of the hemorrhaging woman in the middle, and then he ends, it, ends the sandwich. Mark likes to do these sandwiches. We've talked about this before. That other end of the bread is going back to the story of Jairus' daughter. Why is he doing that? Well, I think one of the reasons why Mark likes to do stuff like that is so that you can compare the two scenes. And in comparing the two scenes, you draw from those comparisons what Mark is waving a flag going, hey, hey, this is what I'm talking about here. This is, this is just normal. One of the things I like about this uh, book club that I go to at Itasca Library is you read a book and you get together with these guys and we're talking about what we saw in the story. And they're like, oh, I love how the color green was a theme throughout the story. And I'm like, right, right, color green. You know, and then you look back in it and you're like, oh yeah, the, every time this happened, the color green was there. I didn't realize that, but if you read it again, you see it. And so Mark is the same. He's, he's, he has a technique, and he's showing you in these two scenes, he wants you to see comparisons. As we think about the comparisons, we see a lot of contrasts. Like I told you, one is on one end of the spectrum of why they don't think they would be able to get to Jesus. He's too religious. He knows too much Old Testament. He doesn't think the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. He's not fulfilling this. This isn't how it's supposed to go. He's messing up synagogue life. He's too religious for Jesus. And then you have on the other end of the spectrum someone who's not religious enough. This ruler has clout and position in the synagogue and in the community. She has none. He rules a synagogue. She can't, even, she can't even step foot in one. He's a male. In that day and age, that just granted extra privileges that you wouldn't get if you were a female. He gets a name in this passage. We still don't know her name. She's a nameless person. He approaches Jesus face to face. He falls down at his feet, but he's face to face in front of everybody. It's not sneaky. It's not, and it's not quiet. He doesn't visit him at night, just, just right in his face. Jesus, I need you to do this. 
she goes to press through a crowd just to touch the hem and just kind of wants to disappear. And so you see that they are opposite ends of the spectrum represented in one story. But then there's a lot of parallels that draw them together. Mark wants us to see something that's the same in both of these stories so that you can get to the point. What's the point here? I love that he kind of shatters the gender status by focusing on two females that are healed. And there's kind of similarities between the two where Mark gives us these little details, like the fact that she's hemorrhaging for 12 years. He doesn't just say a long time, 12 years, and then he tells us the little girl was 12 years old. Is there something significant about the number 12? Sort of, but I think he just wants you to see again, he's waving the flag going, compare these two. 12 years of hemorrhaging, 12 years of life, gone for both of them. In both of the stories, Jesus is met with a rebuke. And on verse 31, um, you can look at it. Verse 31, his disciples respond to his question about who touched me by kind of with a sarcastic like, what do you mean? Who touched you? And then when you look at verse 40, and Jesus says, no, 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 she's, she's not dead, she's sleeping. They laughed at him. In both stories, Jesus is in contact with uncleanness because the hemorrhaging woman is unclean, not allowed in the synagogue, and if you touch an unclean person, you are now unclean, but a corpse is also unclean. That's why the demoniac was hanging out in the tombs. Uncleanness. And then they want to get sent into the pigs, which are unclean animals. So you still see this theme of uncleanness from the earlier in chapter 5, dripping down into these passages, connecting these two stories. They're very different, but they're also very much the same. They struggle with this, uh, there's this unclean theme in both of them. And the people around don't think Jesus can do anything about it. And that's why there's the laughing in verse 40. And then we see that both of them are motivated by the same motivation, which is utter despair. Utter despair. They're not coming to Jesus because they have a little thing at home, the faucet's leaking. Can you do faucets too? I mean, you heal people. Can you do faucets? It's life and death. This woman has lost her life. She can't be with anybody. She can't be with her family. It's all gone, man. She's in pain. She has no money. She's at complete, the complete end of her rope. Now, would she have approached Jesus had it been a lesser problem? I, we don't know. But she heard about this Jesus. And she's like, doctors don't work. I can't, it can't be anybody I have to pay. The professionals, I'm all tapped out on, on the professionals. How about this Jesus guy who's, who's just like touching people? I can't show that I'm in the crowd. Everyone's going to run around. If I announce that I'm coming, he's not going to let an unclean person touch him. I have to sneak through the crowd and get behind him and just touch the garment and then walk away so that everyone's not running off to the priest to ritually cleanse themselves because someone as dirty and as unclean as me dared touch him. And so her plan is born from sheer desperation. What if I can sneak through the crowd? What if I put a veil over my head and they don't quite notice me just long enough to touch the hem of his garment? If I can just get there, she's on a mission. And it's maybe not likely, it's risky, but she just has one goal in mind. If I can touch him, I can be healed. 
And it's not hard to imagine Jairus' plight. All his friends and all his status and all his fellow rulers in the synagogue, they don't mean anything to him when his daughter's life is on the line. It's that final breaking moment where you can't resist this Jesus thing anymore. It just, he's, he's the only chance, he's the only hope. And if I have to lose friends, if I have to lose family, if I have to lose my job, lose status, if they kick me out of the synagogue, I don't care. I want my little girl. So both of these stories center on a person where everything has been taken from them. And they have nothing. And out of that desperation, they press after Jesus. I think what Mark is wanting us to get to, the big flag that he's waving, the point that he wants us to understand from this passage is that despair is a birthplace for faith in Jesus Christ. It's, some people have a story of coming to Jesus and it's almost kind of benign. It's like, yeah, I don't know. I, I grew up in church and um, grew up on the hymns. And... Um, I don't know, one day I just prayed a prayer and uh, got good grades. You know, sometimes I'm sad at night because things aren't going my way, but I pray and, he, you know. And then you hear other testimonies where I hated God, I ran away, I did everything the opposite. Um, I was violent, foul language. I hurt other people. I didn't care who hurt me. Or what or who I hurt, it, I just I was about vengeance and bitter, and then I realized i couldn't I couldn't run on those fumes anymore, and I just laid it all down at Jesus' feet. Now we might go, "Wow, that's an amazing testimony. There's people with amazing testimonies because of all the things that they left behind to follow Jesus. But what we need to realize is, yeah, that might be someone on one end of the spectrum, but we're all along the spectrum somewhere. And if we came to Jesus kind of out of like, I don't know, it's it just as nice, it's nice. I had almost a complete picture of life. I just needed the Jesus piece to kind of make it the complete picture. He was just that one little puzzle piece that was missing to make it a complete puzzle. It bothers me when I put a puzzle together and there's a little tooth missing in it. You turn up the whole house looking for that one little piece. When you finally find it under the rug and you put it there, it feels nice. It feels complete. And Jesus just completes the picture. That's not desperation. You're still at the center of that picture. We each need to have a moment. It may not have been drugs, violence, jail, you know, hurting other people, but, but it comes to a, a place where you realize you have nothing outside of Christ. And if you've got to press through a crowd, if you've got to charge after Jesus, if you've got to lose friends, lose prominence, lose status to get it, you get it because you're desperate. You don't approach Jesus on terms that are like, you know, as long as this stays safe, as long as I do a little for you and you give back and I see that this relationship works, okay, I'm in. No, it's costly. And I'm afraid that if we don't understand the desperate, the desperate situation that each of us are in, 
we won't really appreciate who Jesus is. And if we don't appreciate who Jesus actually is, what kind of faith are we putting in him? Because there's fake faith, and then there's effective faith. And here we see a picture of effective faith that is born out of desperation. Now, we can look at this and go, okay, uh, that'd be cool if every time we had an illness, all we had to do is pray to Jesus and he healed it. That'd be cool if every time we had a loved one that was on, lying on their deathbed, we could just pray to Jesus and then they get up. That'd be cool. But those of us that understand Christianity and just live our lives in this world, we know that's not the case. Jesus doesn't heal every disease. He didn't even heal every disease then. Remember in, in the book of Acts, they come to this gate called Beautiful, and this dude has been lame for, I think it was 40 years. I'm freestyling this portion, so, right? 40 years, this lame beggar at the gate called Beautiful, you remember that? And, and Luke tells us that dude was there every day. Now, who walks through the gate called Beautiful? Everybody. Everybody who walks that way would walk through that gate. That means Jesus passed this guy by. He didn't heal everyone. So you got, after Jesus' ascension, disciples that are dying. I mean, before we leave this gospel, John the Baptist gets beheaded. What happened to him? Everyone doesn't get healed. Everyone doesn't get their daughter to come up again. So why do we get these episodes? We don't get these episodes to guarantee you that every time you're sick, say a prayer to Jesus and he'll remove the sickness. And this episode is not here to say if, if an old person dies, it's no big deal. But if somebody younger dies, just pray Jesus' prayer over them and just make sure you get there before the coroner does and they'll wake up. That, that's not the case. But I'm not just saying that because I don't want the text to say that. I'm saying that because I think that's what Mark is... Mark is not waving the flag of Jesus heals everything. It's something deeper, something more profound that these healings point to than the physical sickness itself. One sign is that Jesus has a coming kingdom. We read about this when he tells the disciples about um, how he's going to fulfill the, the role of the Messiah. And the Old Testament points to this time where um, this coming kingdom, there's going to be perfect health and no death. And so Jesus is pointing to this coming kingdom where there are no medical conditions and there is no death. Now, the woman with the 12 years of hemorrhaging, she died. She eventually died. Of what? I don't know. The little girl that he resurrected in that room She's not walking around. It's not like, oh, go visit her today. She's, you know, she's working at Walmart in, in the Jordan. No. She died. So what's the whole point? The point is something else. One clue that we get is when Jesus says that she's sleeping. You remember when he said that in verse 39, he said, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And sleeping is temporary. Now, sleeping is a way that, uh, it's kind of a euphemism when people would refer to death, but you don't want to say death and you say they're asleep. You know, Paul does that in the apostles, the, the saints that are asleep, so to speak. And what it means is it, it speaks to a theology that death is temporary when it's the first death. Everybody dies once. 
Not everybody dies the second time. That's why when you read Revelation, they talk about the first death, the second death. The first death is the physical death that everybody experiences. Your, your physical body expires. It could be expire early because of an accident or something else or just old age. Your body expires. And why does the, why does the New Testament speak of that as a sleep? Because everyone is going to be raised again. Not just believers. Everyone is going to be raised again and experience a physical resurrection. We're taught this. At that physical resurrection, there's a judgment. And after that judgment, people are split into two camps. Some people are resurrected to a physical life of eternal death, a death that doesn't quite ever finish, but you just keep experiencing the torment of death, but without ever quite dying. Now, that's a difficult truth. It's It's a harsh reality, but it's so clear in Scripture. And no one talks more about the reality of hell than Jesus himself in the Gospels. Then you have another camp where the ones that have their faith in Jesus Christ, they're resurrected to eternal life, and they never again experience death. But everyone, whichever camp they're in, experiences death the first time. It's a sleep, because that first death is a temporary timeout until the resurrection when it's time to face judgment. So what is he doing here? This poor little girl has to die the first death twice. (laughs) She died, and then he raises her, and of course, sometime later, she dies again, and she's waiting to face judgment like everyone else who's died up until this point. When he says that she's sleeping, what he's doing is pointing to the reality that every death now is a first death that's temporary, and that's not the big problem. The big problem is what happens after you sleep. Who solves that? Who solves the eternal death? Who solves the forever death? I do. I can raise the dead to life. So she's sleeping a temporary sleep. He brings her out of that temporary sleep to enjoy life. What Mark is pointing to is that's Jesus' thing. That's what he does. That's what he's come to do. Not to keep everybody from the first death, but to demonstrate that he can keep people from the second death. Jesus solves our ultimate problem. Then real quickly, the other way we realize that this is what Mark is talking about, this is what he's pointing us to, is the theme of uncleanness. You remember in verse 23, the father of the daughter implored Jesus earnestly, saying, my little girl is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He's thinking of the first death. He just She's 12. If she was 120, it'd be like, ah. Uh, but 12, that's just not right. And so he's earnest and he, he wants her to live. But 12 is going to become 120 real fast in the great scope of things, right? And so he's pointing to the unclean theme to say, look, here's what the real problem was. She was unclean and unable to approach God. That's why when he calls her daughter in verse 34, it's so important. Speaking of the woman with the hemorrhage. And the woman who died, the little girl who died, Jesus has no hesitation touching her because uncleanness gets reversed when Jesus touches it. We got this theme with the demoniac. The demoniac is unclean, Jesus handles it. The leper is unclean, Jesus handles it with his touch. And throughout the Bible, uncleanness represents unholiness, and this is what keeps you from God. 
So anybody that was unclean couldn't approach the temple or the synagogue because you can't worship God, you can't be in a relationship with God if you're unclean. It's not about pig's feet. It's not about touching a corpse. Those are symbols that point to the deeper reality that we cannot approach God because he's holy and we're not. Each of us is unclean before God. And our real problem is not the flu or a fever or even a terminal illness. As devastating as that is, it's not the ultimate problem. What's behind that veil? That's the problem. And behind that veil, you need to be clean if you're going to be with God for eternity. So Jesus has to handle not the immediate problems, but the ultimate ones. Well, then why did he handle the immediate ones here? Because it's a symbol. Because it's a picture. He's demonstrating to people that he handles uncleanness. He's demonstrating to people that he handles the problem of death. Not just the first one, the eternal one. He takes care of it. And so what does he demand of people? The last similarity between these two is when he turns to her, he doesn't tell her, you know, that's kind of strange, your little understanding of my garment, if you just touch my garment. What is this garment-touching theology? I've never heard of it. You don't go to the Old Testament and hear about a a garment-touching theology, right? Um, You see healers today on TV, and they take their jackets, and they throw them into the crowd, and people are falling over. That's weird. It wasn't, it's not just weird now, it was weird then. But he doesn't correct her, he doesn't tell her, it's not the garment, blah, blah, blah. But he does tell her what it was. It wasn't a magic touch. It wasn't that you got the tassel just right or you put enough fingers on the linen. It says in verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. The faith behind the touch healed you. What's Jairus' problem? He doesn't believe. So that's why Jesus tells him, don't fear, but believe, which is the verb of faith. Have faith, place faith, believe. And so what Jesus is saying is, the way uncleanness gets handled, the way your separateness from God gets taken care of, the way eternal death gets handled for anyone, is effective faith placed in Jesus Christ. That's how it gets handled. Jesus removes uncleanness so that you can be ready for the eternal death, or the second death, so that wouldn't be eternal for you. And that happens through faith. People come to church for different reasons. I'm still praying for my dad. I don't know exactly where he's at right now. I speak with him, and it sounds like he's a believer. But I don't know, a lot of people sound like they're believers. He never did get back to church. And it's not that going to church saves you. It's just how do you love God, but you don't want to be with his people and you don't want to hear from his word. That's just kind of weird. So I don't know. Pray for my dad. Still alive. But he represents one end of the spectrum of people that, that feel like um, there's a gap between them and the whole Jesus thing. But you may be over here in this other part of the spectrum where you kind of feel like there's too much uncleanness in your background to really get in. Neither of those are true. A lot of us are just stuck in this middle place where we've not faced or hurt bad enough to bring us to a point of desperation to press after Jesus. We're just kind of, everything's going okay. you got your friends in school, you got friends at work, and things are okay. Nothing has really punched you in the face yet. And I hope that you don't have to get to that point to 
press after Jesus in the way that you need to. To press after Jesus and say, He is the solution for my profound problem, which is not the things that are just in front of me and the things that make me uncomfortable, but what's behind the veil. Jesus takes care of that. Is your faith in Jesus Christ to take care of that? Or is it just little minor problems that you think the doctors take care of and then Jesus is kind of last place? But Jesus first, because he solves our ultimate need. Let's pray.